passage for today can be found in Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 13. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If we wish, if you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. This is the word of the Lord. All right, good morning. Now, before we get into our text, just a fair warning. Today's message has 29 cross-references in it. Uh, it's a doctrinal-oriented message. Um, we're going to go quickly through a number of passages. We do have sermon manuscripts that are out on the usher's desk. If you miss um, one or two, things of that sort, uh, it's a great text. And we're going to go all over the Old and New Testament today and uh, behold some of the beautiful things about what Christ is as this glorious beloved son. All right, so fair warning, okay? Uh, it's like sword drill all over again. So uh, we're going to have a great time today in God's Word. Let's pray and ask His help. Father, we come today with a, a Bible in front of us, uh, ready hearts to listen, and yet there's a barrier between the text and our own souls that we need you by your Spirit to overcome. And so we pause in the midst of this worship service and we pray that you would conquer our distracted hearts. Give us an undivided attention, give us a singular focus, and help us to hear from you. Whether we're here in this room and worship too or listening on the podcast, we pray that you would speak clearly today. Lord, I pray that you would exalt your name today. Father, I pray you would exalt your Son. Holy Spirit, I pray you would make the beauty of the Son, Jesus, clear. And that our lives could be impacted, changed, and renewed. Oh Lord, we need help today to understand your word, and so we ask for it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we learned a very important summary about the life of Christ and really what it means to be a follower of his and that was uh, Jesus' call to take up a cross and to follow him. We summarized it this way, that the cross comes before the crown and suffering before glory. This is an enigma to most people in our culture because it doesn't seem as though the path of exaltation or the path of glory comes through suffering. And yet, this is exactly what Jesus' way is. This is his life. This is his ministry, and it is this way for all those who would claim to follow him. 
And so the disciples, if you remember from last week, don't get this. The the Messiah doesn't suffer. He doesn't die. He's victorious. He's glorious. And so as Jesus begins to talk about what his ministry will involve, this path to the cross, it is bursting the categories, the preconceived categories that the disciples have. And then, to make matters even more challenging, Jesus tells them that this isn't just his way, it's their way, if they would be his followers. Which means they must deny themselves, they must take up their cross, they must follow him, that this is the path of a Christ follower. This is the only path, a path that leads to glory and victory, but a path that goes right through suffering and right to the cross. Now, gratefully, the Lord Jesus, in his life, and Matthew, in his account, gives us a glimpse of this crown and this glory. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And hopefully it will make the suffering and the trials both understandable, but also more tragic. It will make them understandable because you see that the cross has a point. But it will also make it more tragic because you realize who is really hanging on the cross. And you realize the glory that he has and the power and the majesty that belongs to him. And today we're going to get a glimpse of that. And we're going to see a glimpse of the beauty of who Jesus is, even though it is cloaked in his humanity and in his suffering. So Matthew 17 gives us a window into the radiant beauty of who Jesus is. And even though his physical form hides the reality of who he is, We're able to behold this beauty of a beloved son and then to understand both what that means for him and I hope also to help you understand what it means for us. So this morning we're going to do two things. First, we're going to look at all of the dynamics of what the transfiguration is and then secondly, have some reflections as to what this really means for our lives. So first... The dynamics of a beautiful Savior. What are the dynamics that we see in this passage about both who Jesus is and what the transfiguration is all about? Well, first notice that the transfiguration is about the beauty of who Jesus is. Verse 1 begins this way. It says, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. So about six days after this former discussion about the cross and about the coming suffering, about the centrality of God's plan in Jesus' life, he takes Peter, James, and John by themselves to a high mountain. This is the first time that these three men are mentioned together in Matthew's Gospel, and you will know that these three men sort of served as the inner circle of Christ's disciples. And according to Luke 9, verse 28... Jesus took them up to the mountain for the purpose of prayer. At some point during the evening, Luke says that it was in the middle of Jesus' prayer time, something amazing and glorious takes place. Matthew 17, 2 says, And he was transfigured before them. Now that word transfigured is a challenging word. In the Greek, it's the word metamorphu. It is a word that often means change to transform. But that doesn't work really well here. The word metamorpho as change or transform works well in that definition in other places, but it doesn't work well for Christ in this moment, which is why translators kind of make up this word transfigured. But what does transfigured even mean? Well, first, here's what it doesn't mean. Take your Bibles and go over to Romans 12 and verses 1 and 2. 
If you're familiar at all with that word metamorpho, you hear the word metamorphosis in that, it's often used for believers in the way in which we are changed from where we are presently to what we are becoming. In other words, it's July, and you should have grown incrementally in your relationship with Christ from January until now. That's how God has designed things to happen. And Romans 12 tells us what that process is to be. Listen to what it says. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And do not be conformed to this world, verse 2, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. So the idea is present your bodies, don't be conformed, and said be transformed, be continually changed. Be altered. Be different. Grow in your relationship with Christ. Or look at 2 Corinthians 3.18. Here's another one. 2 Corinthians 3.18. This talks about the transformation that happens within us and then connects it a little bit to the glory of Christ. We'll figure out all of what that means here in a moment. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, there's that word, into the same image. What same image? The same image of Christ. So we're being transformed into His likeness. That's the goal, to become like Christ. So we're being transformed into the same image, into His glory, from one degree of glory to another. So there's this sense that as you grow and as you are transformed, you're moving from glory stage to glory stage to glory stage to glory stage. One incremental step over time. Progressive sanctification, if you will. This continual movement towards Christ-likeness that happens step by step by step. So you are this, and then you become something different. You are transformed or you are growing the challenge is is that this doesn't fit jesus at all jesus's transfiguration was not a change in essence but rather a change of disclosure that's the difference that's why the translators use transfigured not changed or altered or transformed Because Jesus fundamentally didn't change. Rather, the difference was His glory here was unveiled. In other words, for a few moments, these three disciples caught a glimpse of the beautiful reality of who Jesus was. The veil was lifted and they could see Him for what He really is. Philippians 2, verse 6, tells us that even though Jesus is fully God, that He took upon Himself the form of a servant. Philippians 2 says, being born into the likeness of men. So the reality is, although Jesus has a human body, He eats, He sleeps, He gets tired. Although He has a physical form, He walks on the earth as the God-man, and His glory is veiled, it's concealed, it's hidden. And in particular moments, the disciples got little glimpses of it when He healed somebody, or when He, when he walks on the water, or He says to the storms, Peace be still, and they're enamored and in awe of this power that Jesus possesses. But nothing compares to this moment when the veil of who who he is is lifted and the disciples see clearly the glory imprinted inside of him the result of this unveiling is the most beautiful and symbolic display of the glory of the sun in fact 
Matthew tells us that his face shone like the sun. Verse 2, he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. So the idea is that they're looking at him. Jesus' face was ablaze with the glory of the power of this radiant sun. And his clothes became white as light. And the idea is this overwhelming radiance, this glory, this power is now on display. So here is Christ. He's fully human, but his humanity is hiding the powerful, radiant glory of his divinity. And the veil lifts. And these disciples catch a glimpse of this glory. This is divine beauty on display. And they are able to see Jesus now from the inside out. To the disciples, Jesus was radically different. His face was bright. His clothes were all light. But Jesus was not fundamentally different. He was who he has always been. So the transfiguration is not about alteration. It is about revelation. That's important. The transfiguration is not about alteration, but about revelation. Peter, James, and John simply saw Jesus for who he really is. Transfiguration is about revealing the beauty of who Jesus is. Now, secondly, there's another thing here, and that is we see the beauty of what he fulfilled. The amazing thing is that in the midst of this radiant, glorious display of the power and the the majesty of who Jesus really is, suddenly Moses and Elijah appear and they begin talking with Jesus. Verse 3 tells us this. And behold, that means, hey, this is important. Wow. Behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. This is an amazing moment in biblical history. Luke 9 tells us that Moses and Elijah talked to Jesus about the coming events in Jerusalem, namely his death, his burial, and his resurrection. So imagine this, you've got Jesus in all of this glory, and Moses and Elijah there talking with him. What what is the symbolism here? Well, Moses, if you will remember, was the most well-known Old Testament lawgiver. He was the one who had received the Ten Commandments. He was the one who met with God, carried the tablets of stone, and he was also the one who mediated from the people of Israel to the ruling God of the universe. Remember that moment in Old Testament history when God said, Moses, step out of the way, I'm going to kill all of these Israelites and start over with you. And Moses at that moment begged God and said, no, 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 don't do that. Remember your glory, remember your name, remember what what the people of of, of Egypt will say, that you brought them out here into the, the desert just to kill them. Don't do that. Take my name out of the book of life, but save them. Moses was the preeminent lawgiver. And then you have Elijah, who was the preeminent Old Testament prophet. His was a ministry of calling the nation back to true worship, of courageously fighting against the paganism of his day, and most famously called down fire on Mount Carmel in a sacrifice contest between himself and the prophets of Baal. So Moses represented the law, and Elijah represented the prophets. Moses was the mediator of God's law. Elijah was the guardian of God's honor. And here is Moses and Elijah talking to Jesus. What's going on here? In one word, it's the word fulfillment. Jesus had said in Matthew 5.17 that he did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to what? To fulfill them. 
Therefore, the presence of these two heroes in the Old Testament is a beautiful picture of the validation of Christ's ministry. Moses and Elijah pointed to him. Their ministries were all about him. He's the intersection of all of God's plan. So the Old Testament was not just about Moses, as great as he was, not just about Elijah, as wonderful and as as mighty as he is, but these two prophets were on a mission in order to lay before the people this coming Messiah. In fact, Moses said something very interesting in the book of Deuteronomy. Listen to Deuteronomy 18.15. Here's what he said to the nation of Israel. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. Now that is really an interesting statement, especially in light of what we will see in a moment when God the Father says, listen to him. The point of all this is that Moses and Elijah's appearance here is simply to demonstrate to the disciples that everything in the Old Testament was pointing them to Christ. Everything from the very beginning of time to now was about Christ. He is the ultimate expression of all of what God wants and what his plans were. In fact, after Jesus' resurrection, as he's walking down the road to Emmaus, he encounters some disciples who don't recognize him, and they begin a dialogue. And the context of that, Luke twenty four twenty seven says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Wow, to be a part of that conversation. I hope they have instant replay in heaven because I want to see that one. I want to go back in here. Tell me all about that. This is a biblical commentary offered by Jesus about how everything in the Old Testament was pointing to him. What's happening here is God is bringing his son front and center and showing us that he is the fulfillment of everything that was in the Old Testament. Or as one writer said, the Old Testament and the New Testament sing a duet, but the New Testament carries the melody. Moses, Elijah, and Jesus are in conversation, but Jesus is the Lord of Moses and Elijah. So the transfiguration not only shows us the glory of Jesus, It shows us the beauty of divine fulfillment in Jesus. So in this moment of transfiguration, we see that the veil of who Jesus is is lifted. The disciples are able to see him in his glory. But we also see that God is exalting his son and showing us that he is the ultimate fulfillment of everything that has been planned. Third, we see the beauty of the Father's approval in verses 4 to 8. The event is remarkable, but it becomes even more amazing. Verse 4, guess who shows up again? Peter. Hmm. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. Now, let's just stop a moment. Remember, it's only been six days until that Satan thing happened, okay? And and it's going to take a few days for Peter to get over this. And I I think that, that he's talking very respectfully here and maybe even tentatively. He's saying, Lord, it is good that we are here. Could you even hear him? He's just, you know, he's... He's just trying to help Jesus know he's on the right page. This is really good, Jesus. This is really good. It's really good. In fact, so good. If you wish, notice, if, if you wish, Lord, I will make, now this cracks me up, three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. I mean, at least he didn't say, and one for me. At least he didn't say that. But the question is, what is he thinking? What's he thinking? Is he going to set up a museum? You know, here's the Jesus tent, the Moses tent. Does he want to stay up there? What exactly is is going on? Well, the point is, is that what Peter is experiencing 
is beautiful and glorious. I found something this week I actually found kind of comical because I thought, why, why does Peter say this? Well, the Gospel of Mark answers that question. Mark chapter 9 and verse 6 says that Peter suggested this because he didn't know what to say because he was afraid. (laughs) Okay? So Peter sees the glory of Christ and he doesn't know what to say because he's afraid. So he says, how about I make tents for us to set it up here? Now, what's even more interesting to consider is the fact that some people believe that when Mark wrote his gospel, that Peter helped him giving him background and information. So just allow me a little bit of creativity and imagination. But imagine Mark's writing this, and he says, And the glory of Christ appeared, and then and then Peter said, Mark's writing this, Let's, let me build three tents for you. And then imagine Peter saying, Oh, by the way, I said that because I didn't know what to say because I was afraid. Okay, that sounds good. Let's write that. So And they put that down. So we get an insight in here to what is perhaps going on inside of Peter's heart. And in characteristic pattern, he allows his thinking and his mouth to get ahead of him. And that ought to give you great comfort because that only happens to your friends. (laughs) And what's even more remarkable, verse 5 is very specific. Look at what it says. And he was still speaking. So Peter's talking on and on and on. We don't know what else he said. Got the three-tent thing. Maybe he's talking about, and then we could do this and this and this. And he's talking, talking, talking. And as Peter's blah, 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 all of a sudden this bright cloud descends. And that finally causes him to close his mouth. The father interrupts and a bright cloud envelops all of them. This is cool. You see, in the Old Testament, whenever a cloud like this showed up, it meant the presence of God. Often the Shekinah glory of God. In the Old Testament, when the tabernacle was built, that temporary worship center in Exodus 40 and verse 35, after they dedicated it, a cloud descended and no one could go into the, temp- into the tabernacle because that cloud was there. The cloud meant God was here. And then fast forward to 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 10 through 11, when, when Solomon builds this glorious temple, now a permanent dwelling for God in the midst of his people. And after they had sacrificed thousands and thousands of animals and sung praises to God, suddenly the same thing happens. The glory of God descends in a beautiful way, and this cloud covers the temple such that nobody can go in. And this sense of, oh my word, God is here. So this Shekinah glory descends, but in this context, it's different. Where in Moses' time and in Solomon's time, the cloud prevented people from going in. Now here is Jesus and Moses and Elijah and the three disciples, and the cloud encircles and envelops them. While Peter is still speaking, the voice comes. The Father speaks. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Another moment loaded with meaning and significance. The Father doesn't say, this is a wonderful Son of mine. He doesn't say, this is my most wonderful Son of all. Rather, He says, this is my beloved Son. Or other writers like Luke say, this is my Son, my chosen One. This is the Son with whom the Father is well pleased. And this is an amazing moment because God doesn't usually do this. 
He doesn't speak like this. He sends his word. He sends prophets. He sends visions. God very rarely speaks. In fact, only two times in the entire gospel of Matthew does God speak like this. And in both instances, he says the exact same thing. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The first event was at his baptism and now at this transfiguration. What's happening here? is to see that the Father speaks His approval, His endorsement, His affirmation. And what He is doing here is placing His Son front and center as the full revelation of the divine Word. In other words, listen to me. If you want to know what the Creator of the universe is like, God would say, listen to Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, you want to know what, what the divine ruler of the universe is like, you have to look to Jesus. Colossians 1.19 says, For in Him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Listen to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. It says this, Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the, majest, of the majesty on high, having become so much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Mm. So this is the climax of the transfiguration. It's really the point of the entire text. And it is, the glory of Christ is unveiled His place in biblical history is identified, and he is validated by God himself. Jesus is the full disclosure of what God is like. And so the Father says, listen to him. The response, verse 6, of the disciples, and this is common, when anyone experiences the glory of God, they are filled with fear. Two words that I put together. It's frightening joy. It's this moment where you know this is most, this is unbelievable. And at the same time, you think, I don't know if I'm going to survive this. And then when you survive it, you think, now I could, I don't have to live anymore because of what I've experienced. It's, it's this combination of I'm going to die and now I can die. It, it's, it's those two things mingled. And here the disciples are on their face. And they're terrified. And it's only when Jesus comes to them and touches them that he says, rise and have no fear. Verse 8 wraps up this powerful section. When they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Again, they see his glory. It's unveiled. They see his face shining like the sun, his his clothes bright as light. They they see the affirmation of, of Elijah and Moses and his fulfillment. They hear the Father's identification of his approval. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And when the cloud clears and the smoke is gone and the glory of God lifts, the only one standing next to them is Jesus. What a picture. It clearly identifies Jesus as the single focal point of God's redemptive plan. No one else was transfigured this way. No one else was validated like this. There's no one else for the disciples to see. Why? Because the gospel 
is not just about faith and it's not just about grace. It's about faith alone, grace alone, in Christ alone. There is no one like him. No one. And that is why the the transfiguration is such an important event. The beauty of the Father's approval, the beauty of what he fulfilled, the beauty of who he is, finally, the beauty of an obedient son. The final element here is the conversation as Jesus and his disciples walk down the mountain. And he gives them instructions, verse 9. He says, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Tell no one. You might wonder why Jesus would tell his disciples this. He tells them this because he doesn't want to give any more fuel to the misconception about his role as the Messiah. Because if you saw this, you'd go tell somebody. You know you would. In fact, you'd tweet it and put it on Facebook. You'd send emails out. I mean, you do everything you could. To. I just saw the most glorious thing in all the world. This impacted them in amazing ways. And yet Jesus says, don't tell anyone about this until I've been raised from the dead. Why does he say that? Because Jesus is intent on fulfilling his calling. And his calling is different than what they're expecting. And Jesus is bent on fulfilling the Father's will, not on meeting their expectations. For Jesus, the obedience to the Father, that's what he lived for, not making his disciples happy. So then they ask him a question from Malachi about Malachi 4.4, which says, Behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And so they ask him about why the scribes say that Elijah has to come. And to this, Jesus very simply says, Verse 12, but I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So the son of man will also suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So they're saying, wait a second, we thought that Elijah had to come and Jesus says Elijah did come. It was John the Baptist. But the point isn't the fulfillment about Elijah and John the Baptist. The point is what happened to John the Baptist. That's what Jesus is saying. He says, but did to him whatever they please. Remember, John, his head was cut off because of a party at Herod's house. And so he says they did to him whatever they pleased. And here's the important text. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. What is he saying? He's once again reminding them that the Messiah's ministry is going to be different than what they anticipated, that Jesus has set his sights on the suffering before him, that he is an obedient son, he is an obedient Messiah. So here's the transfiguration of Christ. They go to the mountain, they see the unveiled glory of who Jesus is, they hear the affirmation of the Father, this is my beloved Son, they see the affirmation and the approval of the fulfillment of Jesus through Elijah and through also through Moses, and then they hear that he is going to be an obedient Son all the way to the cross. The question now then is this, what does that really mean for us? Here's what I want to do. Before we get into our application points, I want you to pray with me. So, Lord Jesus, we know that unless you apply your word to our hearts, unless you take this moment of transfiguration and make it alive, it'll just be another truth never really lived. And so we pray today that you would do what only you can do, and that is to give us spiritual eyes to see you clearly and powerfully in this text. In your name, amen. 
So if this son is an obedient son, then what difference does that make? Four things. The first is this. Jesus is beautiful to behold, church. Long to see him. Oh, that I could help elevate your understanding of who Christ is. Because something happened on that mountain. Peter, James, and John were able to behold the real beauty of who Jesus is. They were given a gift in that moment. They were able to see him for what he really is all about. But they were there by invitation. They didn't deserve to see him like that. And it impacted them for the rest of their lives. Listen to a familiar verse, John chapter 1, verse 14. Hear it now in light of this transfiguration event. Here's what John says. He says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Do you hear transfiguration in there? So the disciples saw Him in a new way. They saw Jesus for the glorious reality of who He is. In another moment in Jesus' life, in a parallel way, he said this to Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In other words, you can't see the beauty of the kingdom of God. You can't see the beauty of who Christ is unless God births you again. He has to open your eyes. And the moment when you received Christ, the moment when you said, You're Lord, You're the Savior, I'm a sinner, I need You, help me. The fact that you realized that, the fact that you saw that, the fact that you savored His beauty and beheld Him in all that He is, that wasn't you. That was the mercy of God upon you. And then, yes, you received, but God was in the middle of all of that, opening your eyes, helping you to see, and birthing you to be the new creature that you are. And to behold the beauty of Christ is a spiritual activity that God, by His mercy, must do in your heart, and therefore long to see Him this way. Oh, I pray that you could see Him, and then run to Him, and see Him in this text for all that He is. But it doesn't stop there. Ephesians chapter 1 says this. In in light of this, Paul prays this for the church. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened. He prayed, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. For what? He says that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. So Paul was praying, God, open their eyes so they could see the hope of what they've been called to. Open their eyes so they can behold what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. Verse 19, Ephesians 1, what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe? You see, God not only opens eyes at conversion, but He continues to enlighten the mind and the heart for you to see things that you won't see unless He helps you. And therefore, to behold the beauty of Christ means that you see all of what God is for you in Christ, and you behold Him over and over and over. And my prayer is that you would see Him for what He is, is glorious and beautiful and attractive, so that the trappings of sin and self and devil and flesh would grow strangely dim and you could see the beauty of who Christ is and say, why would I want this when I can have that? Long to see Him. Don't read the Word as a textbook. Don't read it just as some kind of personal development manual. You read this Bible so you can see who Jesus is. So you can know Him and understand Him and love Him. And so that when suffering comes, you can endure like Moses who endured as seeing him who is invisible. The second thing 
is that Jesus is the center of everything. Oh, please don't miss him. I love the fact that despite the fact that Moses and Elijah are present, the father personally says, listen to him, listen to Jesus. I love the fact that when the glory of the cloud lifts, the only one there is Jesus. I love this because we need to be reminded often that Jesus is the center of everything. And that if you don't fall more in love with Jesus, then you're not growing in a way that makes sense and according to the Scriptures. If you just know more theology, if you just do more ministry, but you don't love more of Jesus, then you're missing the heart of what the Gospel is. Spiritual growth means that you are more like Him, not just more knowledgeable. The centrality of Jesus is critical. Listen, I did a quick survey of the book of Colossians. Listen to all of the things that Christ is. He's the image of the invisible God, 115. By Him all things were created, 116. 117. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Verse 18. He's the head of the church. Verse 19. In Him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Verse 20. Through Him was reconciliation of all things. Chapter 2 and verse 3. In Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Verse 11 and 12, in him you were circumcised and baptized and raised. Chapter 3, verse 3, you died with Christ. Chapter 3, verse 3, your life is hidden with Christ. Chapter 3, verse 4, when Christ who is your life appears, you will appear with him in glory. And therefore, Paul says, seek those things which are above where Christ is. That's the orientation of your life. It ought to be, I want to know him. He's the center of everything. So life then becomes all about knowing Him, learning more about Him, falling more in love with Him. It's Christ, Christ, Christ at the center of everything, the center of everything we ever want or need. So be careful you don't create all sorts of little extra things around Christ and then have Him doing what He's doing in the book of Revelation, knocking at the door of the church saying, oh, by the way, that's my church. Can I come back in? Jesus is the center of everything. Don't miss Him. Third, we are to reflect His glory, to make Him known. 2 Corinthians 3.16 says, But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed from the same image, from one degree of glory to another. That's what we read before. So the idea is this, that, that, that I am to reflect His glory. I'm to make Him known. I'm to have a kind of life that's empowered and in love with Jesus, such that when people see me, they see Jesus. So why husbands are called to love their wives as Christ loved the church. I'm to be a living example to little children in my home that when they want to know what was Christ like, that they could look at my life and see, oh, how dad loves mom. That's how Christ has loved the church. And so I'm to make him known. And then Paul continues, having this ministry, this is 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 1, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Why do you not lose heart? Because it's not about you. And if the glory of Christ is in you, then no matter what happens to you, you can always glorify Christ. Listen to me. Nobody can take away from you the opportunity for you to glorify Christ in any situation. 
And in that respect, you are free. The devil can't touch you in that area. Sickness and difficulty and marriage problems and all sorts of things that weigh upon your soul, you can still choose to glorify Christ in all of those situations. You are free to reflect the glory of Christ. Listen to what Paul says. This is 2 Corinthians 4, verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, listen to this, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Do you see how it all fits? He's shining into your hearts in order to make the glory of Christ known. Verse 7, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. He liberates us from getting the credit because we all know it's only the glory of Christ in me. And then when suffering comes, we are afflicted in every way, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifest in our bodies. Oh, this is the hope and cry of a believer that in the carrying of the death of Jesus that people would see Jesus in you. The hope and joy of the beholder of the beauty of Jesus is that others would see Jesus in us. And finally, one day we will see Him in all of His glory. Here's my plead with you. Please don't miss this day. You see, the beauty of heaven is the complete and continual beholding of the beauty of Jesus. Jesus requested this in John 17, verse 24. He said to the Father, Father, I desire that they may see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Why would Jesus want his disciples to see him like this? The only reason why he would ask this is because he knows that seeing his glory will be the most beautiful, attractive, awe-inspiring moment of their entire lives. And the beauty of heaven is that's what we get to see over and over and over for all eternity without any sin or problem or difficulty. And all we do is behold the beauty of Christ for which we have been created. Revelation 21 describes it. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. Get that. So the Lamb is the lamp. And the light is the glory of God, and there's no sun or moon. You know why? Because what's a sun? What's a little sun in the sky to the glory and the radiance of the God who created it? That sun is nothing compared to the beauty and the glory. And so he says there's no sun, there's no moon. Why? Because the glory of God lights the city, and it comes through the Lamb. The Lamb is the lamp. And then it says, by its light the nations will walk, the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. Get this, the glory of Christ never fades, it never sets. 
And they will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So what is heaven all about? Oh, it is about being around the beauty of a beloved son who is seen for who he really is, who's observed as the one who's been the fulfillment of all the promises, this son who's now been exalted because of his obedience, a son who has the approval of the Father and all of eternity for those who know this son is basking in the glory of the beauty of who he is. But the only way you get to be there is if you have seen him, if your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And the only ones whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life are those who have seen Him and then run to Him and said to Him, I'm a sinner, I need you, because you could save me from my sins, therefore take over my heart. And to see Him like that means that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life and only those who are there are able to see the beauty of who Christ is for all of eternity. Peter, James, and John saw him. Something so satisfying, something so incredible, they were able to behold the beauty of the sun. And it's no wonder Peter wanted to stay there. It's no wonder he wanted to stay there. You would too. And you will too when you behold him. As he really is. I pray that you will see him now. And that you will see him forever. Because there's nothing more beautiful than this beloved son. Nothing. We're risen Christ. We talk about you with human words. Barely even scratch the surface of what you really are. And so I pray, Father, that you would exalt your Son and that you, Holy Spirit, would apply your word in our hearts to those today who are suffering. Would you remind them that they are downcast but not destroyed. And when they bear the death of Christ, they manifest Him to the world. And Father, I pray that you'd give hope to those who have none today. To those who need to see you in this text, make yourself clear, Jesus. And I pray for those today whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life, that today might be the day where they see you and they run to you and they say, Lord Jesus, I receive you today. Oh God, make that a reality, we pray. And if there's someone that You need to talk with church before you leave this morning. Someone to pray with you about something that's going on. Just so you know, our prayer team will be here at the front. We'd love to be able to pour God's grace upon you in prayer. So, Lord Jesus, speak now through your word. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you, church. I love you. Have a blessed Lord's Day.